beloved, save for our immutable creator God, our unchanging God, and his universal, invariant, unchanging, abstract standard that he gives us in the pages of Scripture, it could accurately be said that change is inevitable. The story is told of an Anglican priest that was talking to one of his elderly parishioners, and he was letting the lady know that he's going to be moving on from the parish soon, but he was trying to assure her, and he said, you'll probably get a better priest to follow me. And she said, oh, not necessarily so. That's what the last one said before he went. (laughs) The English poet, Lord Alfred Tennyson, he was poet laureate during much of Queen Victoria's reign. In his poem, Morte di Arthur, written in 1833, he is writing the poem and he's speaking on behalf of King Arthur. And Arthur said in the poem, the old order changes setting place to new. The old order changes yielding place, I should say, to a new order. Uh, we can even think in our day and age, even this week, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. King Charles III is stepping into the throne. Change is inevitable. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Our passage this morning are verses 11 through 19. We are right in the heart of this meaty doctrine. We're right in the heart of the section that the author of Hebrews had told this Jewish congregation that he wanted to broach and cover this subject of a man of mystery from the past named Melchizedek. But he told them back in chapter 5 that you are not accustomed to meet, you have become dull of hearing, and you're not ready for this. So we find ourselves right in the depth of this amazing doctrine and treatise that comes from the author on the ministry, the priesthood ministry of this man, Melchizedek. It's interesting, if you were to consult 10, 12 different commentators, different pastors, and look at their outlines on these nine verses you would have if you did 10 different commentators, pastors, you get 10 different outlines. And I don't just mean in the context of the wording, I mean even the structure of the verses. This is an incredible passage, but with deep truth that is easily understood with the indwelling teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, listen as I read the passage we have here this morning, Hebrews chapter 7, and beginning in verse 11. The author writes, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. 
And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, as I indicated before, we could slice this and dice this in different ways, but what we'll do is we'll look at the imperfection of the disposable priesthood in the first two verses, which sets the stage for the perfection of the incomparable priest in the latter seven verses. And the intent here, beloved, is that the original audience, this Jewish congregation, they're being tempted by the siren song of Loved ones, of neighbors, of family, friends, and people from their nation of Israel that are saying, come back. Come back to your old way of life. Come back to your old religion. Come back to your old sacrifices, which ultimately was really come back to your old vices. And beloved, so that they, so that you and I, as God would speak to us here today, so that we stand firm, so that we don't drift, so that we don't neglect so great a salvation so that we stay true to the word that was once for all delivered and the faith that was once all delivered to the saints. Let us look at this text that is pregnant with meaning and application for us, beginning with, again, the imperfection of the disposable priesthood. Now, for most of us here, when we think of a priesthood, we don't, I mean, most of us here are Gentile, even those of us that are maybe doubly blessed to be a Jewish Christian, since A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the priesthood hasn't had the place that it did back then. But to the Jewish society, to Israel back then, the priesthood was the backbone of their society. It was the central issue of Judaism. And that's why the author says, look at the beginning of verse 11. He says, now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, and then parenthetically, for on the basis of it, people received the law. But perfection is how he brings us out here. And actually, perfection is how he brackets this entire passage. He begins with perfection, and he finishes in verse 19 with another parenthetical statement, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, As we consider this word, when we think of biblical words in the Bible, we should understand that different authors will use even weighty biblical words with different meaning, different uh, meanings. And the author of Hebrews' intent and thrust with the word perfection here isn't the same as, for example, the Apostle Paul when he wrote Colossians 1 verse 28. Uh, We were blessed, those men of you that are here this morning, we were so blessed by men's big breakfast yesterday and a fantastic message from Tim, great testimony from Mark Palacio and all the rest as well. And the theme of our men's ministry is Colossians 1.28 where Paul wrote, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man perfect in Christ. It's the same word. New American Standard translates it complete in Christ. The idea is the usage of the Apostle Paul of that word there talks about a maturity. It's a comparative usage that the man of God and the woman of God as well would be equipped and built up to a greater level of maturity. But that's not the sense in which the author here uses. And in fact, it's interesting, even when you look at the same author of Scripture, the same author may use the same word in different contexts. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. 
And he's using the word perfect there, again, in a different sense than that Colossians 1.28. So to understand this, the comparable usage of the way the author of Hebrews is using perfection here, maybe the best example would be to think of Jesus' second-to-last word that he uttered, that he cried out from the cross when he said, to telestai, it is finished, it is complete, it is done, it is fulfilled, it is perfect or perfected. That's the sense of perfection that the author is using here. He's not using perfection here in Hebrews 7.11 in a comparative usage. He's not even using it in a superlative usage. He's using it to describe an objective reality. And this brings us back to the problem, the central problem that all human beings have, which is namely we are in this Genesis 3 world. And as such, we are by definition not capable of this kind of perfection. We fall short of this kind of perfection. In fact, we fall infinitely short of this kind of perfection. And he continues, verse 11, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, look at what it says, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek, his very name tells us that he was a man of faith. Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of, he was king of Salem, king of peace. So his very name tells us that this man of mystery who appeared in three verses in Genesis 14 and then not until a thousand years later when King David in one verse, Psalm 110.4, makes mention of him again and then now here as well, he was a man of faith. It's very possible that his parents were believers. They named him Melchizedek by virtue of their belief. Or perhaps he came to faith in the one true God, the most high God on his own, and changed his name. Uh, to use even in extending the modern illustration before, I understand that King Charles III is considering changing his regal name because of the very unfavorable reputation of Charles I and Charles II. I didn't really know that until this week. But in any event... Melchizedek is a man of faith. Now, going back to Genesis 14, we think of Abraham, Father Abraham. In one sense, there's no one greater, no man greater in the Old Testament than Abraham. There's no man more blessed than Father Abraham. Yet, Melchizedek, even we saw earlier here in Hebrews 7, was greater. Abraham was the lesser, and the author tells us that Melchizedek was the greater for a few different reasons, including that Abraham brought ties to Melchizedek, who was this king priest. But the point here, beloved, is now, as we're going from the first 10 verses of chapter 7 to here, chapter 11 forward, is as great as this man of mystery Melchizedek was, he was merely a sign on the side of the road pointing to Jesus Christ. That is his purpose. He's, we could think of him like kind of a primeval John the forerunner, John the baptizer. Remember what John said? He said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So that is directly what John the forerunner said, but surely the man Melchizedek had that in his heart, even though he was this great man, and he was pointing. He's a type of Christ. But the author continues, verse 11, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. 
He's from a different line. He's from a different tribe. And the point here is that before Aaron's priesthood was even birthed, Melchizedek's priesthood was. Because, beloved, the point here is this. This is God's design from the very beginning. Now, what we see here is the focus of the author here is not on the deficiencies of the priests. To be sure, the author will get to the deficiencies of the priests even later on in the chapter. I mean, the problem with the Levitical priests was they kept dying. (laughs) They kept sinning. They kept having to repeat the sacrifices over and over again. But the focus here in verses 11 through 19 is not on the deficiencies of the priests. The point here is the design of the priesthood, even the Levitical priesthood, from the very beginning. And the system was not designed by God for the purpose of perfection. And what we see here is this begs the question. Actually, it both begs the question and it answers the question, what does God require to enter into his presence? Even as we were singing the magnificent songs that we were singing, come and behold him. What does God require to come to draw near to approach him in his holiness? Is it merely mature sanctification, like the kind of usage of Colossians 1.28? And the answer is no. What God requires is perfect holiness, perfect sinlessness. And again, that is our problem. In this Genesis 3 world, we're not capable of perfect holiness, of perfect sinlessness. But there is one who was and is capable. There is a man who was and is capable of perfect holiness and perfect sinlessness. And he hits the mark of perfection, namely the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is how the author has already introduced us even to this word perfect. Back in Hebrews 2.10 You may remember we read the words, it was fitting for him, meaning God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory and even by extension bringing many sons and daughters would be included in that to, watch this, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Or chapter 5, verse 9, and having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And then next week in verse 28, chapter 7, the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Beloved, he is the perfect son of God. He is the perfect high priest is the point. And what the author brings out here as we now go to verse 12 is an imperfect system brings out a necessary change. Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. And when you see the word change there, it means to transpose, to take one thing out and put in another. It actually would be better to understand not as much of a change as an exchange. There's a new sacrifice that has taken the place of the previous sacrifice, a new priest, a new priesthood. Beloved, the coming of the Son of God, his coming changed the priesthood, and we even see here, changed the law and set the ground for the gospel, for the good news, for the full measure of the gospel of the good news. Now, what this beloved congregation might be asking and what we even today might be asking is, okay, if there is a religion that doesn't work, what is the alternative to a religion that doesn't work? 
Is it no religion? Is it self-religion? No, the answer to wrong religion is the right religion with the right priest. And the point that he's bringing here is when we think of God's original intent and design, even for the priesthood, even for the law, it is not the failure of the Levitical priests that he's talking about here with the imperfection. It is the purpose of the Levitical priesthood from the very beginning that it would not be complete. Beloved, God's sovereign plan was always that another priest would arise. This is not plan B. This is God's plan A from the very beginning. And by way of application, when the substance comes, you set the shadow aside. That was the author's application for the original audience. That's God's application for you and for me. The substance has come, so we set the shadow aside. That is, the imperfection of the disposable priesthood, which sets the stage for the perfection of the incomparable priest and his incomparable priesthood. I said before that the priesthood was the backbone of the Jewish society. Also know this, the priesthood is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews, of the sermonic epistle. From the very beginning, the author has been bringing out the absolute total infinite superiority of Christ. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses and Joshua. And now we're in the middle of where the author is bringing out that he is greater than Aaron and Leviticus, uh, Levi and their priesthoods as well. His priesthood, the perfect high priest, watch this, is royal, eternal, and pastoral. We see that in the remaining verses. His priesthood is royal. So first, in verses 13 and 14, what we see here is the shocking inception of the royal priesthood. Again, the shocking inception of the royal priesthood. And namely, what we see is he comes from a different tribe, and not just a different tribe, a surprising tribe, a shocking tribe. Verse 13, he says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs, watch this, to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. For it is evident our Lord was descended from Judah, watch this again, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Again, this is a different tribe. He's not a Levite. And he comes from a surprising, from a shocking tribe. And by the way, when you see the word another all through this passage, it, it means another of a different kind. There's different Greek words. There's one Greek word, alos, which means another of a similar kind. This is heteros. Heteros, different from a totally different kind of tribe. So that's the shocking, surprising nature of this. From the Levitical priesthood, as ordained by God, the idea of him being a priest would go in violation of that. In fact, we even see, for example, the King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. King Uzziah, who had the office of king, took it upon himself to take the role of a priest. And by virtue of God's judgment for him doing that, God struck him with leprosy. So that's why it's so amazing and shocking to the original audience that he comes not from Levi, that Jesus wasn't born from Levi, but that he comes from Judah. And we know from both the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, we know that Jesus did indeed come from Judah, but you have to trace all the way through the different names to get from Judah to Jesus. But this is only one of two places 
in the New Testament where in one verse we are told specifically that he's from the tribe of Judah. The other appearance is Apostle John in Revelation 5 verse 5 when he has this incredible vision of Jesus coming back not as a lamb to be killed but as a lion to conquer. Revelation 5 verse 5 John writes, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So that is the tribe. He is a royal priesthood. He is indeed priest and he is king as well because it was through Judah and through King David that God established the office of king. And one point I want to bring out here is when it says he was descended from Judah, I'm not sure why. The New American Standard and the ESV translated this as was de descended. It literally says he rose from Judah. It wasn't passive. It was active on the part of Jesus. And he didn't descend. He rose from Judah. Uh, the Greek word, which should be translated rose, that is behind the was descended, literally describes an extra biblical literature of a seed. It's a plant that shoots from a seed out of the ground. Or it's also used to talk about the sun rising on the horizon. And in fact, it's used that way in Malachi 4.2. In the Greek translation of Malachi 4.2, it uses the same Greek word that you have here. Malachi 4.2, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, the S-U-N of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking here. Out of this surprising tribe rose this son, this king, this priest. Beloved, understand this. He rose from the tribe of Judah for you. He rose from the grave for you. He was slain for you if you're in Christ. And he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father for you. That is the message of Scripture. That is the message of the author of Hebrews. And it is because Jesus, the Son of God, fills the offices of king, prophet, and priest, singularly, continually, eternally, pastorally, and more to the point here, perfectly. That is what the author wants us to understand. That's what God wants us to understand. And that's what the author will sum up for us in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 8, verse 1, where the author writes, Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That is what is being communicated to you and to me, beloved, even today. And to understand, Understand this, if we are tempted by the siren song that bids us come back to your old ways, come back to your old religion, come back to your old vices, to cling to the shadow is to forfeit the substance that the shadow represents. To cling to the shadow is to forfeit the substance the shadow represents. So, that is the shocking inception of his royal priesthood. Secondly, we see the sovereign indestructibility of his eternal priesthood. And what we have here in verses 15 through 17 is the author casts a great contrast between a law of physical requirement against the power of an indestructible life. He begins verse 15, look at it. He says, and this is clearer still. So back in 14, he said, this is evident. Now this is clearer still. 
You know, this is obvious. This is axiomatic. This is evident. This is clear still. This is unequivocal truth that you know that we should grab onto and understand. This is clear still if another of a different kind priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews is the only New Testament book which explicitly calls Jesus a priest. Uh, you'll see the singular word priest in the Gospels quite a bit, but that's referring to different priests of the Old Covenant. Uh, Romans 5.16, you'll see singular priest there, but that's not a direct reference to Christ. But here in Hebrews, 26 times you see the singular word priest talking about Christ. And the point the author wants to drive home here is the work of Christ alone leads us to God without any barrier, without any interruption of access to God, without any need or necessity for a repetition or some kind of blasphemous re-sacrifice over the once-for-all sacrifice that has already been provided on your behalf, on my behalf, by the work of Christ. And this is part of his intercessory ministry. Again, citing the wonderful men's big breakfast we had yesterday, Tim Palin's great message from John 17 about the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he began his high priestly prayer to his God and Father, in his humanity for himself in the initial verses. And then after that, he prayed for you and he prayed for me. He is praying for you and for me right now, interceding on your behalf. Beloved, your Messiah intercedes on your behalf as you traverse this world until we are all brought safely home to heaven to be with him forever and ever. And Paul the Apostle Paul wrote to the immature church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, in the great chapter focusing on the power and the glory and the ramifications of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Beloved, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, you are not his enemy, you are his friend you are joint heir. You are his adopted daughter and his adopted son. And I love what the pastor commentator Newell had to say about this. Brilliant quote. Please listen. He said, a billion years, a trillion ages after the saints enter into glory, we will find ourselves, as it were, just beginning to know our God to whose endless glories it will ever be the delight of the Lord Jesus to continually open the door to us. And being man as well as God, it will be his eternal delight to lead our praises. Beloved, that is what you have in store for you in heaven. And wonder of wonder, mysteries of mysteries, that's what we do right here, right now. That's what you do when you go to your marketplace ministry and before the Lord, rather than you eat or drink, you're doing it for the glory of God. You are worshiping with Christ right now on even this side of heaven. And by the way, when it talks about the fact that he arises, it uses uh, Greek grammar that basically is reflective. He himself arises. This is pointing to its middle voice. Uh, we have a Greek professor back there. Basically saying that it's in and of himself, and that brings out the sovereign aspect, the sovereign initiative on the part of the Son in this whole work, in this whole unfolding of the plan 
of redemption. But the text continues, who has become such, look at this, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. These are, this is totally different grounds from the Levitical priesthood. What he's saying here is that our priest, our royal priest, our eternal priest, our pastoral priest has an inherent right which transcends the tribal qualifications. And it's interesting here too, he says, who has become. That's pointing to his incarnation. So the second member of the Trinity, the Son, is immutable in his deity. And he took on a second nature, one person, two natures divine he was God is God and always will be God and since his conception not since his birth since his conception he has a human nature that's why it's he says he became or has become such his priesthood is inextricably linked to his incarnation and we've already seen this look back chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 God has already told us that he is qualified to be our high priest because he shares our human nature. Chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, I had wonderful fellowship uh, this week on different fronts. One was a wonderful Wednesday lunch fellowship. And we were talking about as believers, we absolutely must defend and understand as much as we can the deity of Christ. And also be, we must understand as much as we can and defend the humanity of Christ. Both are true back in verse 16 chapter 7 but and here's the rub according to the power of an indestructible life of an indestructible life of a life that cannot be destroyed of a life that cannot be torn down it's the negative version of a word that in 2 Corinthians 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, we know if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. That's the same word, except this is the negative part. The point here is his life, his priesthood cannot be destroyed. It cannot be torn down, either from within or from without. It can't be torn down from the inside because he is sinless, because he is perfectly obedient. It is because death can't hold him. Enemies can't vanquish him. And because his life can't be destroyed from within or without, so also his priesthood can't be destroyed from within or without. And it, this is by virtue of his sinless life, and this is by virtue of his risen life, his resurrection and victory over the grave. Verse 17, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, present tense, he still is. He was when the author wrote that, and he still is today a priest according to the order of Melchizedek forever. This is the third of four direct quotations of that David Psalm 110 verse 4. And again, when David wrote Psalm 110 verse 4, the Levitical priesthood, the old priesthood, the priesthood that the author is drawing a contrast here, had been in place for some 350 years. And when David wrote that psalm, he jumped back over the Levitical priesthood, back to the Melchizedek 
priesthood. But here in Hebrews 7, in the verse right here, the contrast is between the old covenant Levitical priesthood and the new covenant priesthood of Jesus. And what the author is saying here in verse 15 through 17 is that which was before the old covenant Levitical priesthood is finally obsolete. And that which has now come in the person of Jesus Christ is eternally present. And the situation is, these dear people were thinking about going back. It's like they had the medicine. They had the medicine for continual life. And the picture is they went up to the pharmaceutical counter and said, well, I want to give you back the medicine. Will you give me a copy of the prescription? Why would you do that? Why would you exchange the old, the dead old, for the living new, for the life-giving new? I had lunch Friday with a, a, a Jewish ex-business partner of mine and had the opportunity to, again, bring the gospel to him. And I was explaining to him at one point in our conversation, he made some comment along the lines of trying to earn heaven or you know, basically changing by what you do. And I said, no. It's very clear. God makes it clear. It's, we're not saved. We don't get to heaven by our behavior. We get to heaven by our belief. Father Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Father Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. Father Abraham wasn't saved by his behavior. Father Abraham was saved by his belief. He did have righteous behavior, but that came as a result of his belief. And Beloved, here in Hebrews, there is a central motif of this once-for-all act of Christ. Look at verse 27 here in chapter 7. We'll come to this next week. But 7.27, Jesus does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because, watch this, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Or chapter 9, verse 12. It's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Beloved, once for all. The work is done. It is complete. So, what we see We see the shocking inception of his royal priesthood. We see the sovereign indestructibility of his eternal priesthood. Finally, in the last two verses, we see the shepherding intercession of his pastoral priesthood. Beloved, the point here, dear brother and sister in Christ, your superior shepherd priest brings a better hope. What the author does here, he says, for on the one hand, verse 18, and then on the other hand, verse 19, he brings a contrast. He begins, for on the one hand, verse 18, look at that, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weaknesses and uselessness. There's a setting aside of the law. And this setting aside, that's not even best there. This is an annulment. This is a complete removal. Uh, this word they translate as setting aside only appears twice in the New Testament. The other appearance is in chapter 9, verse 26 of Hebrews, where it's translated that he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it is a complete removal of the law, the ceremonial aspect of the law. But he describes, he tells us why. He says, because, here in verse 17, 
excuse me, verse 18, because of its weakness and uselessness. It is weak and it's unprofitable. Now, understand this. The reason why God says through this author that the law is useless is not because it had no use. The reason he says, the context here, its uselessness is in the sense of it can't save. It can't save. You see, my problem is I was born a sinner, and I can't undo my sins. I can't make them vanish. I can't wind the clock back and do a redo. That's the problem. That's why in verse 19 at the beginning he says parenthetically, for the law made nothing perfect. Again, that's the back-end bracketing of this theme of perfection. And the author here is echoing the same thing that we read in the writings of Paul. Paul states again and again that the law has a purpose. It is, according to his letter to the Galatians, it's a schoolmaster, it's a tutor that leads us to Christ. But the law cannot save. It's powerless to save. Galatians 3.11, Paul wrote, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's clearer still, we could say, by borrowing the Hebrew author. Beloved, God's law as designed by God has power to kill. It does not have power to save. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 7, he called the law the ministry of death. And in verse 9, two verses later, he called it the ministry of condemnation. So why then was the law given? It was given so that by breaking it, I discover my utter sinfulness and my utter weakness. The purpose, God's original intent and purpose. So earlier we saw his original design and purpose for the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Now we see his original design and purpose for the law. It was not to provide strength. It was to provide a standard, the universal invariant standard of God's holiness and our sinfulness and the infinite chasm between the two, which sets the stage for the priestly work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 7, verse 7, he said, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. So, beloved, the law was and is important and vital, but it was not, it is not salvific. It's not complete. It's not eternal. The law has purpose. It tells me I need a Savior. We can understand this. The Levitical priesthood and the law were candles that God gave to his people in the night to see them through until the breaking of the dawn and the rising of the sun of righteousness. Under the law, under the old covenant, under the Aaronic priesthood, there was awareness of sin, but there was no atonement for sin. There was revelation of sin, but there's no removal of sin. There was guilt, but there was no grace. There was condemnation, but no salvation. There was subjugation, but no redemption. There was alienation from God, but there was no adoption by God. Because what the law required, it could not provide. That's why the author will say later, chapter 10, verse 1, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, watch this, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make 
perfect those who draw near. Beloved, what use is a priest? What use is a sacrifice? What use is a Messiah, a Christ, who can't save completely and eternally? We don't need a salvation with an expiration date. We don't need a salvation that lasts for a moment in time, that needs constant repeating. I mean, they kept doing, even as we read, the sacrifices again and again and again. And what do you call it when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, and you get the same result? A booster shot? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Beloved, uh, we are ant-like cinders of sin before a holy, flaming, justice God. We, it would be an easier thing to stand on the surface of the sun and not melt before its heat than to enter into the presence of the holy God and not be consumed by his fiery wrath. And the life question that was driving people then, which is the same life question driving us today, is how can sinners approach God and not be consumed by his wrath? And that's why at the end of verse 19, verse 18, on the one hand now, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. Literally, there is an introduction of a better hope. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the boast of our hope. Chapter 6, verse 11, the full assurance of our hope. Chapter 10, 23, the confession of our hope. Or chapter 6, remember verse 19, the steadfast anchor of our hope, which takes us into the veil, worshiping with Christ Jesus as our worship leader, through which we draw near to God, beloved, into the very presence of God who is transcendently pure and infinite holy, you may now approach him with confidence, not in yourself, not in myself, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This better hope, beloved, is anchored within the veil, fixed in the person of Christ, and it takes you immediately, directly, and wonderfully into his presence. Beloved, this is deep theology, but this is not arm's length theology. This is vital. This is essential. This is biblical. Guilt must be pardoned. Conscience must be pacified. The heart must be purified. And this teaching gives us confidence for the day of difficulty. It gives you peace when your conscience alarms. When the flood of turmoil threatens to overwhelm, we turn again to the rock of our salvation. We turn to the sure foundation. And on this solid rock, we stand firm. We stay true. The sirens of Greek mythology were dangerous, vicious creatures. They were on an island surrounded by treacherous cliffs and rocks off the coast of Greece. They would lure doomed sailors to their death with the lure of their beautiful voices, their beautiful strains. When Ulysses and his men were on their conquest, they were warned by Circe to avoid the sirens at all costs. They were told the sirens' voices were fatal to all who listened. They would either crash their boat on the rocks and drown, or they would just stay affixed like a tree and die of starvation 
at the beguiling nature of the temptation of their voices. Circe offered to Ulysses, if you want to test your will against them, have all your men put wax in their ears so they can't hear. Have them bind you fast to the mast. And no matter what you command them, no matter what you entreat them, let them not listen to you, not do anything, but leave you until you come away from the danger of the sirens. Yeah, Ulysses did this. At length he heard the beautiful strains that stole into his mind. They overpowered his body and overcame his will. The music of the siren songs became sweeter and sweeter. And his, van, his, uh, his valor, his will just vanished and shrunk away. And he struggled with his shame and at last the bewitching voices of the sirens prevailed. He began to command his men. He raged at them. Loose me, unbound me. He promised them mountains of gold if they would let him loose so he could stay. But they continued on with their oars. He raged and tore his bonds and eventually as they moved out away from the sounds, he eventually passed out from the way of temptation. Jason and his Argonauts, when they set out to search for the golden fleece they were warned by media who in the greek mythology was the niece of circe media warned jason and his men again about the dangers and even as they came close to the island all around they could see the shoreline strewn with the body of the doomed sailors that had met their death and had succumbed to the charms of the sirens now on board the boat though was the king of minstrels named orpheus and Orpheus said, let them, let the sirens match their songs with mine. And he challenged the sirens whose silvery voices stole over the moonlit waters. There were seagulls in long lines and shoals of fish that came to listen. And the oars of Jason's heroes began to fall away from their hypnotized hands. Their heads began to droop. Their heavy eyes began to close. Then Media cried out to Orpheus, sing louder, wake up those sluggards. Orpheus struck his skillful hand over the strings of his lyre, and his voice rose like a trumpet. The music penetrated the ears and the hearts of the men, and their souls thrilled. Orpheus kept on singing until his voice completely drowned out the siren's song. Once again, the Argonauts took up their oars, and Jason and his men sailed to victory. They said, sing the song again, Orpheus. We will dare and suffer to the last. Beloved, the siren song, even today, is alluring. The siren song that says, come back to your old ways. Come back to your old religion. Come back to your old sacrifices. Come back to your old vices. Just dabble in your old worldview. And you can tie yourself up to the mast. You can set up the hedges of protection. You can try to stuff your ears with the wax of Circe's and those hedges of protection are valuable to win the near-term skirmishes and the battles but beloved the war must be won in the heart and the better way than plugging your ears with the wax of Circe's is as you fall more and more in love with your savior and his word and the beautiful music of the doctrines of grace the finished ministry of Jesus Christ his royal priesthood his eternal priesthood his pastoral priesthood that will wash over your soul and drown out the siren songs of temptation beloved please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer Lord God we praise you and thank you Lord we thank you again for our salvation thank you for the joy and the privilege we have to worship you thank you for the promise of heaven Thank you for the victory over sin that we can enjoy even now. Lord, our hearts are broken because we do know that we still sin, but 
We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. As our interceding high priest, you are praying even now on our behalf. We praise you and the final word of the prophet that you are. We praise you and worship you as our risen king. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus. We pray, we sing, we do all these things. Amen.